Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On today's episode, we talk about documentary making in the first person. I speak to three directors who insert themselves into their films in different ways. First, in the film Strong Island, Yancey Ford tells the story of his brother's murder on Long Island in 1992 and the long-lasting effects it had on his family. My mother always suspected that there was something else that she didn't know or that she hadn't been told that had happened that had contributed to my brother's death. She'd asked me, is there anything that you know that I don't know? And I flat out lied to her on more than one occasion and said, no, you know everything I know. And that wasn't true. Second, in the film Icarus, Brian Fogel sets out to test the effects of sports doping on himself as a cyclist. But his story takes a strange turn when he meets the Russian doping expert Gregory Rodchenkov. Together they create an international expose of Olympic drug use. Brian presents their findings to a group of experts. As you guys all know, there's a Department of Justice investigation going. So Gregory's been advised by his lawyers he should not be here for security reasons. I worked with Gregory over about six months to compile a record of what happened in Russia. This is the spreadsheet of every single athlete that was on the state-mandated protocol what every single athlete was taking in London, including their sample numbers in collection. When Christiane goes back and tests these samples correctly, she will basically find them all positive. Our third and final filmmaker is Jeff Orlowski, who previously directed the film Chasing Ice that used time-lapse photography to document the accelerated melting of glaciers. After that film's release, Jeff was contacted by an undersea diver who enlisted him to make a new film about the destruction of the ocean's ecosystem called Chasing Coral. Here's Jeff in the film. Richard sent me an email completely out of the blue, and um, he attached two photographs, one of a healthy coral reef and one of a dead coral reef. And when I saw those photos, the light bulb immediately went on. It's like, if you can document that change, you can reveal this to the public in a powerful way. So we knew from the start that there was something that we wanted to get involved with. Each of these films takes on an important issue, and I encourage you to watch all three on Netflix. Our conversation starts with how each director made his choice to appear on camera. Later in the program, they describe what they hope audiences will take away from their films. This talk was recorded in November in front of a live audience at the Doc NYC Festival. I begin with Yancey Ford. He was interviewed previously on Pure Nonfiction 59. On that episode, we talked about how he got his start as a producer for the public television series POV and what it meant for him to make Strong Island as his first film. But that interview didn't cover Yancey's own appearance in the film. He shows up intermittently in close-up, looking directly to the camera in a black space. Having grown up in the South where the cops and the Klan were one and the same. 
My parents didn't turn to the police for protection. They had already felt that the police had turned their own son into the prime suspect in his own murder. At Doc NYC, I asked Yancey how he directed himself. Well, it's funny because at the beginning of the process, um, I wrote a list of 10 rules for the film. And the first rule was that Yancey will never appear on camera <laughs> in Strong Island. Um, we shot these interviews, um, you know, and with, with, with my intention was only ever to use um, my, my VO from these interviews. Right. Um, we say you shot these interviews. You shot interviews with your mother. Yeah, we and shot with interviews your, with yeah. my mother, with my sister, with my brother's two friends, with two other, you know, two other characters. And we also shot interviews with me. Um, you know, and I think in in the director's kind of um, uh, you know folly, I was said I said to myself, well, we won't we won't use the picture, but just in case, right? I was dead set on not being in the film. Um, but after the watchdown, um, and you know the the decision that I made that you know led me to re um, to reimagine what the film would be, I ultimately wound up literally front and center um, in the film. And I think that one of the things that um, you know that my my character actually does do that no other characters in the film can provide is a kind of um, connective tissue between characters and you know, this sort of black void where my character exists is divorced from time. And so it enabled us in the edit to use my character where, um, you know, where it was most necessary and, and where it helped the, the story um, both ask additional questions, but also to you know, sort of advance the narrative of the film. And uh, I'm curious about that process when you were being interviewed in the film, who was doing the interviewing? How was that process being guided? Well, I I directed um, the crew who interviewed me before I sat down in the chair. So Rob Moss, who is a filmmaker, um, same river twice, um, you know, f prolific, incredible guy. Um, Rob Moss uh, interviewed me um, the majority of the time, and then my my producer Jocelyn Barnes also interviewed me. Um, I, I gave the crew a few instructions. I, don't, I didn't want to know what questions they were going to ask me, and so I never knew. Um, and I told my DP not to stop rolling if I called cut. The third thing I did was to build um, a wall of sound blankets between me and the crew. So if you can imagine that I'm on this side, on the stage, and in between me and everyone else, sound, DP, AC, Rob, monitor, producer, Everything. The only thing that I can see are two lenses and two tape marks. Because in order to answer questions that I wasn't necessarily prepared to answer and talk about things that I wasn't necessarily prepared to talk about, I needed to be as alone in that space as I possibly could. Um, and by creating this bubble, um, I was able to do um, a few things. I was able to say things I'd never said before. I was able to actually make connections um, between what happened to my brother and you know contemporary American issues in real time, um, and I was also able to you know sort of express um, what most audiences you know who know about these murders from social media don't actually get to understand, which is that these these killings take out entire families. These killings, you know, they are 
they are explained away with the same narrative that's as old as the country. Um, and doing that alone is much, much easier than, than doing that in front of an audience, even though ultimately the audience was meant to be, you know, many more people than the seven in the room with me on the days that we shot. Now let's turn to another first-time filmmaker, Brian Fogel, with Icarus. Brian started out as a passionate cyclist. As he describes in Icarus, his hero was Lance Armstrong. I'd always, in the back of my mind, suspected that he had been doping. I felt that I didn't really want to know. Because a lot of the guys that he raced with and guys who had raced against him that I'd just known over the years, they were my friends. Brian started Icarus with a goal to test a doping regimen on himself. He was sent to Gregory Rodchenkov in Russia, and that led him to a different story. At Doc NYC, I asked Brian about his original motive to film himself. I was not planning to be uh, at the center of my film. Um, and um, I, I... Have you I, seen your film? <laughs> yes, I've seen it, um, but I was, but initially, um, I, I did not create a, a ten list, and uh, and my number one thing was I will never be on camera, as Yancey said. But, but uh, in the conception of the film, um, my original idea um, was that I was going to find a pro athlete uh, who was currently. Uh, racing, and convince this guy that for the greater good, that he would essentially dope, we would assemble a team around him to advise him, and then he would get through the system, we would expose this in the film, and basically, even though he had participated in this, it would not cost him his career because he did it for the greater good to show that the system was a failure. So that was the original conception. And as uh, beating down the door to be that person. Exactly. And, and, and as you started to look at that, it it became harder and harder in the sense of, okay, what, what athlete is actually going to, going to do this, even if they are themselves doping. So then I had an idea that I would find um, a top-level, like, recently retired professional that had been in, like, Tour de France's and things like that and have him do that. And what he would actually do would be his own program, what he had done, except he would do it on camera, we would document it, we'd get him into races, we'd, you know, and, and again, show that the system essentially doesn't work. Um, but what I quickly realized in that process of exploration was that I was going to be unable to essentially have control of what that outcome was going to be. And I said to myself, well, I could get this ex-pro and he would agree to do this. But A, how am I going to pay him? B, if I pay him, it looks like there's some sort of collusion involved. It can be open to, you know... Uh, to, 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 you know, hey, what did you do, or this was about money. And C, I thought to myself, well, I've got a rogue element that I'm embarking on this journey that's going to be a couple years, and how do I know this guy isn't going to quit? 
How do I know this guy isn't going to mess something up? How do I know that I'm going to be able to control the subject? And through all of that, I ultimately decided, well, I'm the one who's most passionate about this story. I'm the one who's, you know, really feeling like I, I, I want to explore this and expose what I saw as a completely broken, fraudulent system. And so I said, hey, I'll, I'll be the one to do this kind of um, in that Morgan Spurlock way and supersize me. And I said, hey, no, nobody, we haven't seen this done on camera. And at least if I'm in the film, um, I know that I'm not going to quit. I know that if whatever happens, I'm not going to say, hey, I'm done. And that was ultimately this, the decision of, of why to put myself in the film. Here is Chasing Coral director Jeff Orlowski. I'd love to share just one thought, because I actually haven't spent that much time thinking about filmmakers being in the film itself. And just after hearing your comments, um, I, I think there's, so it seems in my mind right now, there are three sort of categories when filmmakers are in the films. It's either when they've experienced something themselves that they, it's only their story that can be shared, or when they did something themselves that that story needs to be shared. And there is sort of this third category where filmmakers are the narrator or the host who's sort of like hand-holding you and carrying you through the story. Um, and there's sometimes I feel like the filmmaker may or may not need to necessarily be in the film, but I think in all these three cases, like we experienced something firsthand or did something firsthand that like that is the essential element of the story. The, the films don't work without that component in it. Um, so in our case, with uh, we, we had this curiosity. We wanted to capture this phenomenon happening in the ocean. We knew that these corals were changing. They were turning white. Uh, when a coral reef is healthy, it's vibrant and colorful, massive colors, countless fish species, all of that. It's, it's the epitome of life on the planet. It, it's teeming with life. And we were learning from the scientists that as the water temperature gets warmer, those corals turn white. And if they turn white, they get stressed. And that's it's a huge, huge visual signal of climate change. And it's been happening only for the last couple decades. And it's happening all around the world. So that's what we knew going into this project. And we knew that if we could capture, if we could somehow capture that process of healthy colors turning white, that that could potentially be a signal and this visual evidence of climate change. If we could get that out there, maybe we can combat some of the skepticism that still exists in this country around climate change. Um, and that's, that's based on what we learned with Chasing Ice. Like The visual evidence is more successful than any debate, any argument, any chart, any graph. If you can show people pictures of the changes happening, that's sort of the, the golden ticket there. So we were wanting to build these cameras, and we worked with these great engineers and technicians on how to build these camera systems. And once we went down that path, we really tried to document as much of that as possible. Um, and with Chasing Ice, I actually did most of the filming myself. I was following James when we were doing the time lapses in the Arctic. I was able to shoot that as a one person, like one camera, zoom lenses, wireless mics. I basically did all run and gun shooting on my own there. Um, and when we were starting this project, it was very clear like we couldn't do that anymore. When you're on a boat getting the equipment prepped to go install, you have to switch all your physical gear from shooting dry and, and everything staying dry to now you're rigged up in a wetsuit and scuba gear and you need uh, your camera in an underwater housing and, and that transition alone takes like a half hour to get prepped and ready. So very, very quickly we realized that we needed a lot more people. So we, on most of these trips, we ended up having an underwater crew and a topside crew. One crew de just dedicated to the land and shooting on boats um, and then another crew that was dedicated to waterproof cameras uh, rolling in 
into the water and capturing all of that. And we didn't know, we knew we were going to have some challenges. Um, we didn't know how many challenges there would be and how complicated it would be. We actually had anticipated film, finishing the entire film a year earlier, but because of camera complications, because we were never really in the right place at the right time for the first few months, we were working with scientists to get the best, most accurate data, reading data right off of like NASA satellites, getting the predictions as to this part of the ocean is abnormally warm. We think corals might bleach in this region. We don't know if it's going to be bad or really bad. We would go down there. We would set up our cameras. There were times where we had the camera pointed at one healthy coral, and we thought that might bleach, but the, camera, the, the coral next to it bleached and turned white, but the one in our shot stayed perfectly healthy and fine. That was extremely uh, infuriating. Um, but, but that whole process there, and I think this is the process of documentary film, like you don't necessarily know where the story is going to go or end up. And the challenge there was, we have to film everything. And you have to film everything as if it's going to make the final cut. And you need to cover everything properly with, and make sure you have good sound and make sure you have multiple angles and cutaways and you can edit a scene together. Um, so at the beginning, that was a huge, huge challenge. How much of this should we be capturing? Can we make verite scenes out of it? Or is it just going to be montage? Um, which is sort of uh, a solution sometimes. It's also sort of a Band-Aid sometimes. Um, and, and it was really wanting to focus on what everybody's doing. So we just gave our team a bunch of cameras, uh, film everything that we could possibly cover. We'll be back with more from Yancey Ford, Brian Fogel, and Jeff Orlowski talking about how audiences have reacted to their films after the break. If you're in New York City, please join us at the IFC Center for our weekly screening series, Stranger Than Fiction. Every Tuesday night, we show a new or old documentary, followed by a conversation with the filmmaker or other special guest. The winter season runs through February and March. For more information, go to purenonfiction.net. These three films each take on something incredibly uh, important. We've got a film about environmental devastation. We've got a film about the Russian doping program and the incredible power structure of uh, a government to go after an individual. And we've got uh, a film about the racial dynamics in America that dictate our justice system. Uh, you being in these films is um, is part of the engine that helps tell this story. Uh, but let's talk about the story that's being told and how it's been received by audiences. Um, Jeff, what, what have you experienced being on the road with Chasing Coral, putting it in front of audiences? Um, when we were on the road with Chasing Ice five years ago, we had lots of people ask us questions after the screening was over, still curious about climate change and global warming and, and the science. And what I heard this and, oh, I heard that. And like, there was so much more skepticism five years ago. Um, of all of our screenings starting at Sundance to today, I maybe there's been one question uh, following Chasing Coral where people were still like skeptical or curious about climate science. Um, and that's been just a huge fascinating shift in and of itself. Um, we've done a lot of screenings of the film in conservative communities as well, where we're really trying to like get outside of my, my echo chamber, right? Just acknowledging that all of us have our own little echo chambers that we're in. Um, but we've been really trying to get beyond that to explore and see, look, we didn't make this film for me or for the environmental choir or the environmental 
communities. Um, we really want this film to be designed and built for communities far beyond that. Um, so we've done a bunch of screenings. Uh, we're, we're doing a pilot campaign right now in South Carolina, where we've done a good number of screenings in churches and schools and community groups in South Carolina. Um, we're investing we're right now fundraising to invest for an entire 2018 campaign just focused in South Carolina to see how far can we go with this film at shifting consciousness around climate. Not just with this film, we're bringing in a bunch of other friends' films that are on climate. Um, so we're, we're building a network of environmentally themed films that can all play a role in shifting mindset. Um, so we've, we've been blown away by the response there. Um, my favorite, just some anecdotes, um, there was somebody who, on their profile on Twitter, on Twitter, they, they self-describe as being alt-right, and yet they were promoting Chasing Coral. And like, that was really interesting. Like, that's perfect. Like, that's that's what we want. We I want more people. It wasn't a who, bot. It, as far as I know, it wasn't a bot. But if it was a bot, that's awesome too. Like now, if bots are promoting chasing coral, even better. Um, but so that was one example. We were we had uh, some friends, uh, some partners of ours at the Nature Conservancy, and they were having a, a gathering, a meeting in North Carolina where they were talking about. Um, uh, security, global security, national security around climate. And they were having this event and some random person came into their event that day and was saying, I'm about to meet the, the Republican senator, what should I be talking about? And it sort of took the entire group by surprise, like, who are you? Where, how'd you get here? What's your story? And it turned out that his son had seen Chasing Coral at a screening that we did at a school, um, brought the film back to their family, their whole family watched it. This dad was an avid scuba diver and really cared about the ocean but knew nothing about what was happening regarding coral bleaching. And he also happened to be a big conservative donor and had donated a lot of money to Republican candidates. And here was a person who supports the Republican Party and now wants to be a champion for climate policy. Like, that's the silver bullet. In my mind, if we're going to ever address this issue properly, the rest of the world is all in accordance with Paris. The rest of the world gets this bigger picture. Like, we, there is no business as usual if we don't address global warming now. Our, our window and our opportunity to address it is small and it's closing. And the only real political problem that we are facing still is one political party in this country. And there are a number of people within the Republican Party who are sticking their necks out and, and breaking against party lines and saying, look, I get it, we get it, the science is there, and this is how we as Republicans can address this. This is how the Republican Party can solve this problem. That, in my mind, is the hope. That's the silver bullet. And, and that's the conversation that we're trying to push. And it's been, it's been amazing to see the film get out there, the response from the public, the support, and the opportunity. So it's been, it's been kind of mind-blowing. Yancy, uh, with all three of these films premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January and then uh, came out to the more public release in uh, different stages, uh, yours uh, came out just a month ago, uh, went up on uh, Netflix. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, what you've engaged with audiences around this. I'm uh, both how people talk about their own similar stories, uh, perhaps, or, or their reckoning with uh, those kinds of stories. And I'm also curious specifically about your own story, if in the community of Long Island, the story being out in public has stirred anything else up. Sure. Um, so I'll answer your second question first. Um, the, the film... You know, it's been out for about a month now. I haven't heard 
um, back from Long, Long Island. We're planning um, a, a large uh, screening um, at the community college in the town next to mine um, in April of next year, um, which I think will be the thing that really gives the, the the film its biggest footprint locally. So that remains to be seen. I can I can tell you this, um, that at every screening since our premiere at Sundowns, there has been at least one person in the audience to self-identify as a survivor of homicide. At least one. And these are including um, the screenings for members of, of the Academy. So one thing that I've learned since the release of Strong Island is that we are a culture that has always shamed the survivors of violence. We are a culture that has always sort of de decided that self-defense is a matter of opinion as opposed to a matter of law. I've had, you know, I think the, the, at the premiere at Sundance, um, or maybe the screening that Malia Obama was at, um, I had someone stand up and say, I was a prosecutor in the Bronx DA's office for 18 years. Something very wrong happened here. So everywhere I go with this film, it is an, af it is an affirmation for audiences of what particularly communities of color, of what these communities have always known but have never been believed about, which is that there is unchecked violence against unarmed black and brown people that is as regular as the sunrise, right? Now we have organizations like the Marshall Project and the Brennan Center and others that are crunching data, including the, the Marshall Project This crunch data that uh, that includes the year that my brother was was killed and found that there is you know white people white americans who kill unarmed black americans are eight times as likely to be deemed justified in those shootings the national average regardless of who kills who is two percent so what i have seen and what our team continues to see is that wherever we go with this film and whomever we hear from, right, from social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, or email, we are constantly hearing from people who say, I lost so-and-so, I lost a such-and-such, the person who killed them claimed self-defense, and there seems to be no, you know, reason in reasonable fear anymore. It, it's just fear. So one of the things that we will continue to you know, talk about you know, with the release of Strong Island is that we need to get back to, in our judicial system, remembering that it's not just you can kill someone if you are afraid of them, right? Because if I had that privilege, right, I, I could have killed at least one person this month, right? And that would never, ever, ever be allowed to happen if 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 straight fear were were the were the standard in our in our legal system. So you know the the need for a return to the valuation of life on an equal footing. That is what we hear back from communities, and frankly, people are tired of um, this 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 environment now where people are finally crunching data and data itself is now being questioned as legitimate 
right? So first, lived experience is illegitimate. Then the the authentication of lived experience by other people from outside the community is illegitimate. And now that we have facts that are backing up, um, you know, the, the the stories of racial discrimination and disproportionate everything through our judicial system, um, now that we have those facts and that information, all of a sudden the facts are illegitimate. So we are moving straight into this place where people are going to say, enough. You cannot continue to, den to deny this. My brother's story is 25 years old. It could happen tomorrow. And the exact same reasons, the exact same points would be made to justify his death. I asked Brian what it's meant for Icarus to reach an audience. Today, in today's New York Times, uh, there are two large stories um, because of this film and this story. The first story is that Vladimir Putin yesterday held a press conference uh, saying that the doping scandal is a result of a United States conspiracy against Russia and that the doping scandal is America's way to involve itself in the upcoming Russian elections and to try to take Putin out of power. This is real. Uh, the second thing uh, that was reported in the New York Times yesterday is that Russia is formally asking the Trump administration to extradite Gregory Rachenkov, who they are blaming 100% for this scandal while denying all of the thousands and thousands and thousands of documents of evidence that unequivocally prove not only did this happen, but that the Russian ministry was aware of this, that Gregory was answering to Vitaly Mutko, who has been promoted to be the vice president of Russia to get out of harm's way, despite forensic evidence, despite a DNA, despite science, I mean, it is unimaginable. And this fraud was perpetrated against every clean athlete on planet Earth for the last 40 years. Russia stole thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of medals. They went into world sport over the last 40 years, and basically any single athlete who was competing clean in those games were robbed. And here we have a country essentially denying all accountability. And not all are, only are they denying all accountability, they're trying to persecute the one person who was brave enough to come forward with the truth about this, and on top of that, now blame the United States for this conspiracy. And this is happening right now, in real time, in today's news. And the takeaway from this is A, is there any doubt whether or not Russia is meddling into our political process, whether or not they are able to hack our elections, whether or not they are uh, involved in geopolitics in a, in a malfeasant way? I think the answer is incredibly clear from watching this film. The second takeaway of this is what are we as a society going to tolerate not just on the playgrounds or battlefields of sport, which is actually geopolitics of countries coming together 
you know, in war without weapons, but in the political landscape, are we going to allow a foreign power to come in and shape our government processes? Are we going to allow a foreign power to sit there and lie and place fake news and place ads on Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and corrupt our democracy? Are we going to allow this? And you know, what's going on in the current US administration? And the biggest thing is what we are seeing is that despite all of us believing that we're living in this kind of democratic process, we're seeing that, that corruption ultimately wins, that the truth is not important. And it doesn't matter what, how much truth there is, that there is a way around the truth and that there doesn't seem to be a punishment for essentially crimes of this sort of caliber, at this sort of level, that world leaders are able to essentially, by denying and denying and denying, make this go away. And when I look at what's going on in our country right now, I'm sitting here going, how much evidence do we need? How much more do we need as a, as a country to be, in, to be infuriated about what's going on? And this is mirroring itself in Russia. And, and I think of the film as a story not about doping in sports, but a story of the corruption of truth and what ultimate power can do and the cost of essentially telling the truth in the society that we're living in today. And this story is playing out every day and I'm incredibly fearful for Gregory because what we're seeing is that telling the truth and having the bravery to come forward to do that um, has a has a very very severe price, and uh, and I'm hoping that um, that he's going to be okay. But that also that that our government isn't going to acquiesce to Russia's demands to extradite him, because in so doing they would create a situation where nobody has any safety to come to the United States ever again to tell about the wrongdoings of their government and know that the United States would be a safe place and a protective environment in which they can expose these truths. And um, so it's, uh, it's a very pivotal time and this is playing out um, as, as I sit here right now. I wanna thank Brian Fogel of Icarus, Yancey Ford of Strong Island, and Jeff Orlowski of Chasing Coral for joining me at Doc NYC. You can watch all their films on Netflix. Last week, Strong Island and Icarus were chosen among the five Oscar nominees for Best Documentary Feature. If you're in New York City, please join us at the IFC Center for our screening series, Stranger Than Fiction. Each Tuesday, we show a documentary followed by a conversation with a filmmaker or other special guest. Learn more at the Pure Nonfiction website. Thanks to our team, series producer, Sarah Modo, editor and sound mixer, Tom Micah, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.